in the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Doom. There, two podcasters named Anthony and Dakota forged a master podcast. And into this podcast, they poured their knowledge and geekiness into amazing discussion. All right. Well, I am officially cringing. I hope you are too, fellow listener. <laughs> My name is Dakota, and I'm joined with... Anthony. That was not me. That was Gandalf. Gandalf was the one, uh, specifically from the Battle of Middle-Earth video game, uh, which, Anthony, you want to explain the connection to the introduction of Lord of the Rings and the Battle for Middle-Earth? Oh, yeah. So the Battle for Middle-Earth is this real-time strategy PC game from way back, like 2004, 2005. And in the intro of that, Gandalf pretty much reiterates what Galadriel says in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, but I liked that version a little bit more. Okay. All right. Because I like Gandalf a lot. I mean, Galadriel's cool, but come on, Gandalf. Gandalf and it, I mean, is and, the and OG. And, it's, and it was um, voiced by Ian. Like, it was really him that really? said it. Yeah, like... I think he's voiced most Gandalfs in like the video games. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. I will. I don't remember if I played Battle for Middle. I don't remember if I played Battle for Middle Earth actually. But uh, today we are not talking about Battle for Middle Earth. We're talking nope. about the Fellowship of the Ring, the first the film in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I have severe love for this trilogy like it's it's a problem how much i adore all of these films this anthony i think is our star wars you know like you the generation before us had the star wars films that came out in the late 70s and early 80s right when we were kids when we were turning uh 11 12 that's when the lord of the rings came out and that's kind of what ha- what we what we built our geek lives around or at least that's that's how i've kind of viewed pop culture uh that's how I, that's how i've gauged pop culture ever since so i think that for me was my star wars moment is the lord of the rings film so i'm i'm excited to finally get to talk about it on this podcast yeah i would say that like as a kid they're they were like my favorites they're like way up there yeah like and it's crazy watching through it again and it's and it's that trilogy that like i revisit every year and for me it still holds up like it still looks fantastic yeah and what's crazy is that there's so many little details in the lord of the rings trilogy and and the extended editions even in the theatrical editions that when you finally like when you get to a certain age it's almost like you're unlocking new insights into certain characters and why they're doing certain things or um you're noticing details in the background or in the lore or world building that you wouldn't have necessarily cared about in previous viewings it's a it's a movie that has so many layers and i call i call the lord of the rings a movie because all three films were filmed at the same time and that's kind of a feat that really hasn't ever been replicated to that extent in Hollywood ever since. Even like the Avengers uh, films, the um, Infinity War and Endgame were filmed back to back, but they're not at the level of 
cinematography and uh, epicness, at least not on a, on a fantasy scale or a length scale as Lord of the Rings is. Right. That being said, I think we're going to have to break the Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers and Return of the King into two separate videos because they're just so long. So if we're ever going to um, get into the nitty gritty of uh, each of the details that we actually want to talk about, we're going to have to break it up. And what better place to break it up than on or around the place where the Blu-rays or the DVDs break up the halfway point of the films. So we're going to do disc one-ish of The Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm pretty sure that there's a couple of things that we've gone over where that we could have broken them up. But there's so much going on in Lord of the Rings that doing each of the movies in one episode just well i think we'll miss a little bit too much yeah i mean even we don't have to go like scene by scene like sometimes we do but right we would definitely miss a lot if we were trying to squeeze in every little detail into one podcast so we're gonna have to split this up between two different weeks so uh this week we'll do disc one of fellowship and then are you are you good to do disc two of fellowship next weekend yes we can do that we can do that. So before we begin, Anthony, what have you been up to this past week? Well, since the last time we released an episode or the last time we recorded, I'd been doing a lot. I had been playing some VR. I started Konosuba, the anime. Oh, I love Konosuba. Yeah, man, it's hilarious. Absolutely yeah. hilarious. Like it, it's it's got this fantasy action to it, but I think it's like eighty percent comedy and like twenty percent action. Yeah, there's so many like animes that take place in like a video game fantasy video thing. game fantasy world yeah. like setting, but um, so few get it right. And Konosuba is like it 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 finds its niche really well, so I I, I do appreciate that one. Um, what VR games have you been playing? You said you were playing VR uh beat saber beat saber is really fun another one called population one it's a battle royale one which is really like trippy like playing a battle royale in vr because you're like turning around and like you're trying to scope people down <laughs> it's it's crazy another one that i played that i thought was really cool and it's separated into three episodes and uh, it's called vader immortal and i played mm. the first one of that and vader immortal is so cool especially like you get into those like moments where you you get the lightsaber and you're actually like using the lightsaber oh my gosh man and i I hear from you know i've done a little bit of research on it i don't know what the actual story is but i've heard that it's a canon uh story in the star wars universe oh is it now i don't know how much it actually affects canon or anything but it's supposed to it's supposed to be like a story that actually happens in vader's timeline somewhere it's really cool that there's some really awesome visuals in it and using the lightsaber is just it's like really cool so i'm uh i'm building a star wars timeline slowly i've i like i know that there are plenty of star wars timelines out there um, and I've done one for the High Republic, but I want to kind of slowly expand that to be um, a full Star Wars canon timeline, which is just such a daunting task. So I'm going to need your help on Vader Immortal because I don't have a VR set. Like oh, what happens yeah, in it. And you don't have to tell me on the, this podcast, obviously, but you know, yeah, yeah, we'll, no, we'll work together. Yeah, when that when that moment comes. Yeah, no, it's, it's really cool. I enjoyed it a lot. 
they had this big sale on all of the Star Wars games. So for like sixty bucks, there's this pinball one that you got that you get in it. All three Vader Immortals, uh, Tales from the Borderland, uh, Borderlands, Tales <laughs> from Galaxy's Edge. I've had the Galaxy's Edge one for a while, and I had Episode One of Vader Vader Immortal. I just finally got to it. So since I had those other two games, I got you know that sale discounted. But the pinball one's pretty fun because you actually like you have this room. It's a Star Wars themed room. There's this pinball machine that you walk up to and it's like playing an actual pinball machine. You hit the flippers and you see it like you know bouncing around on the uh, the field. And the more you play, the more you unlock and you can decorate the room. It's really cool. That's pretty cool. They actually just came out with a big new pinball machine, um, and like in real life, not in VR. That is a uh, Mandalorian themed. So um, if oh. I ever see that in the wild, I'll go pick. Uh, I'll go play a game or two. I wonder if the pin because there's a Mandalorian one in there that I was playing. I wonder if the- it's the same one. Maybe. I mean, they they may have uh, like made that as like a segue to get people into like you know playing actual pinball. Dude, that's awesome. That yeah, man. Cool. So I've been I've been having fun with that and. then revisiting lord of the rings is always fantastic time did you finish fellowship in one sit down or did you break it up a little bit or what did you do no i broke it up a little bit uh fellowship for me is a little slow especially in the beginning i love all three of the films but i feel like my uh, my favorites are are definitely two towers and return of the king I also broke it up, not because it was uh, necessarily slow. It's just I don't. I only have so many hours to sit down and watch something in a given day. Right, you know? right. There's that uh, too. Being an adult is hard, but um, you know we make sacrifices. Some of those sacrifices involve cutting Lord of the Rings up into multiple parts, like exactly. this podcast. Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with you on um, that. It's boring. Or it's no, you didn't say it's boring. You said it's a little bit slow, and it is a little bit slow. But I feel like it's necessary, in the sense that like everything that happens in the Shire, everything that happens on the way to Rivendell, sets up who the characters are, who the main um, hobbits are, and like why you need to be invested in them. And I, I think that that is the most crucial moment or section of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Because the rest of it hangs on the that on the shoulders of that moment, you know. So, uh, and I, I feel that way about most of Fellowship, but we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. What about you? What have you been doing? Uh, well, I told you a little bit, or I was saying a little bit that I was like working on a Star Wars timeline, and because of that, I've been going through some of the. Uh, novels that I haven't read uh, like on Audible while I'm working and I listened to two and a half so far since uh, since I last spoke about Dr. Afra, I think. Mm. Yeah, so I, I listened to Queen's Peril by E.K. Johnston. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went through that one. And then I went to Queen's Shadow. So Queen's Shadow is actually the first one in that, that series where it's... Um, it's like the middle book in the trilogy. That's the one that, that I went through, Queen Shadow. 
Okay, yeah. Uh, it takes place when, like, four years after The Phantom Menace, and uh, Queen Amidala is like stepping down as queen so that the next elected queen can, like, take her place, and she starts becoming a senator in the right. Galactic Republic. And right. it's pretty cool. I mean, it's not like a super exciting Star Wars story, but it does fill in the gaps of that character a lot. And, right, um, it's a lot more political. It is, but you know, it, I, reading that book and also reading the Queen's Peril, which takes place in the first couple months of Padme's queenship on Naboo, I I have a lot more respect for the character. Not that I've I ever like disrespected or didn't have respect for Padme because she's always been an awesome like Star Wars character, but. Right she like the books just flesh out her character and her motives and like what what drives her to do and keep doing i really appreciate that i I love stuff like that both books are written by ek johnston and there's going to be a third one coming out in november called queen's hope that takes place during the clone wars so it's it's kind of like broken up like the star wars trilogies where the middle one came out first then the prequel and then the sequel so uh, I'm ex- I, it's kind of a weird format for uh, like a novel series to, to take. I would recommend reading Queen's Peril before reading the first book, Queen's Shadow. It, that's just my recommendation. I got, I got more out of the, the beginning of Queen's Shadow because I knew the characters better from Queen's Peril. So I'm going to stop rambling about that. I also uh, started listening to uh, Claudia Gray's Leia, Princess of Alderaan. It's a young adult novel uh, about oh. Leia as a 16-year-old learning about how her parents are in the rebellion and like wanting to do more. So it's it's like her origin story a little bit, and I'm I'm excited to get more on that. But I have I'm only like a quarter of the way into it, maybe. But I like it so far. Good old Bale. Good old Bale Organa. Bail Organa and Bria Organa. Yeah, I actually really have grown to like Bail Organa just from Queen's Shadow and also this book because it kind of carries along. He befriends Padme in Queen's Shadow as a senator. Yeah. And this novel kind of is closer to like the original trilogy. Um, and it kind of goes to show like how he's evolved in his political career. So. That's pretty cool. I also like the actor that plays him in the movies too. Yeah, he's Jimmy got like Smith. such a Yeah, he's got such a like a kind face. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. He just looks like someone you can trust. And I Right, appreciate that. right. Like he, he played that character well and it made it made sense why he was entrusted with Leia, like like why he was the one. The book really sh- elaborates more on that and that friendship and why he was so entrusted, like his family. Yeah, uh, so I, I definitely the uh, Padme books. We I, I say that we both recommend. Um, yes. And so far, the the Leia book I recommend as well, just because a it's Claudia Gray. She's my favorite Star Wars writer currently. And she she's knocking this one out of the park too. So yeah, she's good. She's really yeah, good. yeah. She's awesome. But other than that, you know, just watching random things here and there. Nothing nothing really to write home about. Oh, Bad Batch actually. Yeah, uh, that's oh man. That's been like the biggest thing so far. More Star Wars. So it's it's gonna be a Star Wars summer. That's, I have a feeling. You you don't even have to ask me because you already you already know how I feel about Clone Wars and this is. 
like that this this is a blend between that and and uh you know the rebellion age yeah the age yeah. of rebellion i i notice that the storytelling feels more like star wars rebels the way that they approached their their storytelling and like the the narrative structure of the show but the fact that it takes place so close to the clone wars and actually with clones is just such a great bridge between the clone wars and rebels so i think uh, especially as this is the first real animated show that's like fresh for disney plus right. this is gonna be a big show and it's gonna do it's gonna i think i hope it's gonna do well right and the way oh my goodness man and the way it, that first episode began oh man it was it, it was a uh, scratching uh, an itch that hadn't been scratched in a while yeah the uh the way it started with um the clone wars opening yeah it was really good so we will have to we'll have to cover more of these animated shows in some future episodes yeah i would love to do like a clone wars um season by season breakdown i think that yeah. would be fun but for the time being let's get into our topic of the day the first half of the lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring yes uh, let's go from a galaxy far far away to a land far far away i was there three thousand years ago <laughs> <laughs> Okay, in, the year, in the year 3434 of the Second Age. Uh, a last alliance of men and elves. So I love I love the way that the Lord of the Rings opens. Especially yeah. in the extended cut. It's just because for people who didn't read the Lord of the Rings, there's a lot that you need to know. There's a lot that you missed from the Hobbit book. There's a lot that you don't know about the world itself. And they spend literally the first eight and a half minutes just dumping information on you, you know, but it's not boring. It's, um, it's super cool. And it's just like the foundation of the story. I feel like in that eight minutes, they, they really do set up that world in a way that it's easy to understand. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because I, I because I feel like even as a kid, there's a lot that I did understand. Sure, I might have not understood everything, but there's still a lot that I did understand. And it just the older I got, you know, that knowledge refined itself. You mean like of the lore of the world that they were trying right, to build? Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's kind of hard. Uh, well, as as kids and you know, first time viewers, second time viewers, like understanding the depth of lore that Tolkien or it's actually pronounced Tolkien, um, wrote over the course of his life for what he called the Legendarium or the Lord of the Rings world, yeah. Middle Earth and stuff. But there's so, so, so much there. And even, uh, and I, I think the reason I, I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy as much as I do, besides the fact that they're great films, is that there was such care taken for presenting the lore in a way that was honest it didn't hide anything from you you know like right. there, there's things that they don't explain but are just existent in the world you know yeah like they never explain why legolas can just walk on snow uh while the rest of them are trudging through it 
uh, while they're climbing up the mountain. But it's there. It's kind of weird, but it's it's cool. You know, they never explain later on in the film. I'm jumping over to disc two at this point. Why the the elvish cloaks that they give don't get wet when Frodo and Sam are in the water, and they come out of the water and they're all dry, but the rest of them is soaking wet. It's a weird little fun fact that you notice upon like future viewings, but and they never explain it. It's just the magic of Lord of the Rings. It's and part. Of, it's part of the magic, and then like it's funny. And and then what would you do if like behind the scenes they really just like had him take it take it off because they didn't want it to get soaked because it would take too long for it to dry off. I I have no idea what they did behind the scenes, but they could you they imagine f- like that? It it was probably like something so simple, but then they they were like, you know what, that could work for us. Yeah, yeah. There, there, I'm sure there's so much of that in this in these movies, but um, they spent uh, like an astronomical amount of money, and Peter Jackson wasn't yeah. a well-known director at the time. You know, the fact that I, I think they had put so much money into the films at the start that it was too late for New Line Cinema and uh, the other producing companies to back out of lord of the rings and he was just like we're just gonna do all three at once and it was just like all right just do it too crazy yeah (laughs) that that's got to be one of the biggest risks that hollywood ever took and i'm so happy that they did because those films hold up amazingly well amazingly well they really do like every time i come back to it like i it just it never gets old it never gets old i'm i mean sure like i said fellowship might not be my my favorite but that doesn't mean that i don't like it i i like every time i watch through it i watch through fellowship because i still like it that much i still i each each and every one of these films offer something that like is very like appealing to me and it's not like you know how there's like some people that watch through a series that they like but they always skip over a movie i never skip over any of them yeah yeah i i see what you're saying um, I know some people who like um, will watch Star Wars and skip over Episode One because they presume <laughs> that it's a useless entry into the series. But I think that that's, um, I think that's cray cray. Yeah, I I do agree with that. Here, so, the, here at uh, Project Ecology, you heard it first. Dakota said cray cray. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> What what is cray cray is that you know you have you have Galadriel. Oh, so there's so many little details that uh, I noticed on this this latest viewing, uh, and I, I can't touch upon every one of them that I wanted to talk about because we're breaking it into two parts. So I'm right. going to save um, other revelations later on in the film for our next podcast. But I love the fact that it starts with her whispering in Elvish. And then yeah. it's almost like it it gets translated into English, you know, or yeah. you know the common tongue, whatever. And that's kind of what happens when she's talking later in the film to like Frodo and them. You know, again, I'm jumping over the second disc, but uh, you know, in the in the woods of Lothlorien, when she's talking to them, you can kind of hear her whispering in like the back of your head in Elvish. And then in the forefront is like her speaking in, you know, traditional English 
tongue. So I love stuff like that. It's it's little details that just like bring the film from a 10 to a 12 for me, you know? And I, I love how, you know, I, I love how that language is just like straight up made up. I know. And I, it sounds like it sounds so real. Mm hmm. Yeah. Like, how is that even possible? Well, Tolkien was a linguist. You know, he studied languages. He was, um, he knew language like back and forth. I don't know if he was a polyglot. I don't know if he spoke multiple languages. I'm sure he did. But um, he definitely knew the inner workings of many languages. So he had, um, he, he wrote and he like crafted multiple languages actually. And you get a couple of them in just the Fellowship of the Ring. You know, we get the the Elvish uh, Cinderin. We get the Black Speech of Mordor. Yeah. We get the Dorvish runes over the door of Moria later in the movie. So right, the guy was a genius. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy, and they were able to take it and put it on screen, and it just it was so natural. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that, uh, I mean, we're going to talk about some of the scenes, but overall, the cinematography is just, it's so magical. And it's something that it, it's, it's almost like, a it, like a, when it comes to fantasy, anything, I feel like the Lord of the Rings, like set a, a certain like standard, a, a certain bar that needs to be met. For me to be like man that thing's good and i think what uh they did so well was um you know previously before this fantasy was always a little campier the wizards and the the warriors were always brutish um they were it's right. it, it's almost just like slapstick i don't want to say slapstick but like it was campy you know it felt like a game you know, like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign sort of thing. But with Lord mm. of the Rings, especially this film, uh, they turned it around in a, in a sense. And they, they created this world and realized it so well that it never feels out of place for itself. You know, even the funny parts work within the world. Right. So, it, it doesn't take you out of the moment. No, never, never. So going back to like the those first eight minutes where they're like info dumping and explaining um, what's happened in the course of the past uh, three thousand years, basically we we have like the last alliance of men and elves meeting, you know, at the like in front of Mordor and they're fighting an army of orcs and then Sauron comes with you know this huge mace and. His, with the power yeah. of the ring he's just like swinging and like people are flying about dude when i was a kid that was like holy cow when i read this book because i read it before seeing lord seeing fellowship of the ring i was like i did not expect it to be that epic you know so it kind of like yeah. blew it out of proportion in my head you're like oh my gosh but what did i get myself into the best detail of that fight for me and i think it's one of the most striking scenes in the in the series in general is um the precision of the elves as the as the orc 
army is coming and they just start like swinging their swords like in like a, a wave you know what oh, i'm talking yeah. about yeah oh, it's so cool i know it's the choreography in these movies i mean it's it really does it really does baffle you when you do realize that it was filmed all together because you watch these movies and it feels like it took like 10 years to make these movies yeah yeah i don't know how long it did i would guess you know maybe two years of filming i'm actually gonna look it up how long did it take you know I'm, I'm pretty sure that the planning the planning took a while and i mean the fact that they had uh weapons really you know there were real blacksmiths making these weapons they had leather working done it's just they put so much into this and they earned so much more because i'm still buying these things <laughs> okay so the three films were shot simultaneously entirely in jackson's native new zealand from october 1999 until december 2000 so a little over a year with pickup shots from 2001 to 2004 so as the films were coming out and they needed more shots they would bring the cast back to new zealand to film a couple more shots for each of the films the the films came out uh you know between 2001 and 2004 so that that makes sense so that's pretty that's pretty cool let's jump forward a little bit you know we have Gollum, uh who gets the ring after a sealed door or the ring betrays a sealed door after he takes the ring from sauron right um he's influenced by the ring because there's that moment where isildur is there uh him and elrond are in uh mount doom and isildur is going to toss the ring but then the ring influences him to not right so so yeah we we also then see that the ring goes to the uh, most unlikely creature imaginable which was a hobbit bilbo baggins of the shire and <laughs> at, at this point in the film it's it's just like a heartwarming like oh he's just a little person you know <laughs> i know it, it's funny though that she says that because technically Gollum Smeagol was, was a hobbit-like creature um, yeah he was like a river folk which is kind of a distant cousin to the hobbit i don't know if they still exist during the lord of the rings timeline or like the the era of it is of it all but uh because he lived 500 years longer than he normally would have because of the help of the ring right so all right so we're in the shire we, we start to see, like, Bilbo is writing a novel, and he calls it The Hobbit. So it's almost, like, kind of self-referential uh, in a way that, like... <laughs> yeah. Instead of Tolkien writing The Hobbit, it's it's Bilbo's story. Because it was Bilbo's story, you know? The, the story of Right. Well, he, he had called it There and Back Again, right? Yes, There and Back Again, A Hobbit's Tale by Bilbo Baggins. Which isn't that... Uh, that's another title for the book. I think right. It was like the Hobbit there and back again, or like I it think would interchange. I, either that, or that was one of the chapters, the chapter titles. Uh, oh, that might have been. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I wish I knew more about that. I, I wish I liked the Hobbit, especially the Hobbit films, as much as I like the Lord of the Rings films. But we're not going to talk about that today. The book was way better. The book was way better than the films. I think I, that I the just, films I are bloated. 
They, yeah, they, they were bloated because I remember watching the films and I'm just like, dude, what is this? Like, why, why did they, because I, I, I really did enjoy The Hobbit. The Hobbit is a good book. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It's just, yeah, they, they couldn't recreate the magic. So Gandalf comes rolling around. I love Gandalf. There's so many great introductions to all these characters. You know, you, know. You, you're getting little things like the simple life of the hobbits, you know, like what they enjoy doing, how most of them are kind of like unintelligent and don't have many aspirations. And then you have uh, Frodo Baggins, who prefers kind of like the more peace and quiet of uh, life. And he's reading a book alone in the woods and right. Gandalf strolls by uh, singing uh the road goes ever on and on um and we have uh <laughs> bilbo or not bilbo yeah <laughs> uh frodo. An amazing line from this film you know we have frodo coming up you know call calling gandalf out you know saying you are late. late a wizard is never late nor is he early he's it was he simply arrives when he means to he means precisely when he, he arrives precisely when he means to. Yeah. Um, and I, I love the relationship that Gandalf specifically has with the hobbits because you can tell he just has like a deep love for their species. The fact that he just comes every year to bring fireworks to these people who have no other interaction in the world, you know? Right, right. That's how it was with Bilbo. I mean, when when he you know in, in the Hobbit, mm-hmm. I mean they had they did nothing. They had nothing going on. Bilbo was the only one that went off and did anything. Right, and Bilbo and Bilbo's time period, you know, sixty years prior to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, Gandalf had been doing that since Bilbo was a kid as well. You know, so Gandalf's just been fascinated by the Hobbits for right. decades, if not centuries. Something that that I like uh, throughout the series, and of course we'll we'll talk about when we get to the other films, is how the hobbits are respected more and more throughout the series, especially the four. Yeah, I- I'm pretty sure we can you know talk about like little snapshots of of the spoilers. Later films. Yeah, we can talk spoilers. They've been out for twenty years now almost. Well, well we have to ask River first. <laughs> so um uh, yeah that that one of those last scenes in the lord of the rings where everyone bows to the hobbits oh i have a i have a poster uh like an artist rendition of that scene because it it's one of the few scenes that like i always get choked up at whenever yeah, no, I, watch I, it. I yeah i love i love that moment i really do it's i i um when aragorn tells them that they bow they bow to no one it speaks volumes it's, I mean, it's because, incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because in this first film, you see that the life that they live, they live really with no care in the world. You see the perils that they go through each and every single, you know, each and every single one of them, you know, Mary Pippin, Sam and Frodo, especially Sam and Frodo, you know, they all grow. No, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. So let's uh let's jump into what what gandalf's doing in the shire this time around he is there to um 
celebrate with the rest of the Shire because Bilbo's celebrating his 111th birthday. And I know, oldie. Yeah, he's he's lived longer than uh, most, if not all, the hobbits prior to him, and he doesn't look old at all. So he's clearly gained some extended life from the ring, which becomes apparent later, you know? Right. And I like the fact that, like, his distant relatives, uh, like, will never forgive him for living so long because they would have inherited his house and fortune uh, that he gained from, you know, his trip to defeat smog and stuff back in the day. (laughs) There's so much to, like, say about that party scene. Um, where, you know, they're, they're celebrating the party, but yeah, part of the mystique and the magic of Gandalf is that you don't actually know how powerful he is, especially in this first film, you know, yeah. you don't, you don't get a grasp of like what he's capable of, but you know that he's a magical person because he's got the wizard hat, he's got a staff, um, and he's got fireworks that can like become the shape of dragons and stuff. But uh, I, know. I love, yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> I love the simple scene of uh, Bilbo blowing a smoke ring, which is something that you know people can physically do. It's it's a trick that people learn. But Gandalf he decides to you know make like a a, a, a smoke ship to like travel through the yeah. ring. Yeah. <laughs> and it just it goes to build on this layer of fantasy that the show or the film is trying to present that this is a, a this isn't an ordinary dude you know he's he's something a little bit more and yet he's not using his powers like super showily you know like he's just he's just someone with powers who just happens to like hanging out with hobbits yeah so yeah they they start having the party uh, are there any scenes in the the party that you particularly like or care about well it, it's funny that uh Merry and Pippin they set off the the fireworks the one with the dragon yeah and um gandalf's reaction to it, it's like absolutely like hilarious he just like grabs him by the ears mediatic I, I, brandy book and peregrine took i should have known <laughs> <laughs> i love he always i love how he always bags on mary fool of a took yeah or pippin yeah uh oh yeah yeah pippin yeah, he always like bags on him. Yeah, we'll we'll get into. I I I learned some things about Pippin's character this past time watching, but I can't really talk too much about that in this podcast. But next week I'll I'll dive into right. it because I I found something that it like kind of like broke my heart a little bit about Pippin and the way that they did certain scenes. But we'll talk about that next week. But um, yeah, I like that scene because it introduces the characters in a meaningful way you understand that these two are like brothers but they're not yeah. you know they're also troublemakers and gandalf knows of them because he says i should have known he you know he knows their full names and everything right. and you can clearly tell that they're just juvenile and delinquents and we later see them stealing crops from uh farmer maggots uh farm and you know it's just <laughs> they're running they're running and yeah we get to know these characters and their personality type pretty quick and i think the the film does a good job of like you know 
giving each character their own little quirk. And while Merry and Pippin are very similar, Pippin is the more goofy one. He's the one that right. um, is more the butt of the joke. But I think by the end of the trilogy, he is someone that you feel really bad for, you know? Um, he, he does... They all sacrifice a lot. All four of them. Yeah, they, yeah, they really do. But I, I think Pippin comes into his own later in the series. And yeah, so no, no, I, he does. I, I love I love those characters so much. So, something that, that we definitely need to talk about is the music, man. <laughs> I know. It's a good thing you, you mentioned that because I probably would have forgotten. But I, I listened to Howard Shore's score like literally all the time uh sometimes when i'm editing podcasts sometimes when i'm editing videos i have a a playlist of like a a soundtrack library playlist you know i'll i'll tell like hey siri play soundtrack library and it'll start playing you know random music from my soundtrack library and most of it is because most of it's like lord of the rings stuff I didn't find Royksoff on Apple Music. I, I I can I can listen to the I can listen to that score like I'm listening to my favorite band or artists. I know. Was it Howard Shore and John Williams? Like those those two. Yeah. The, I, those I will are say, like always on repeat. Well John Williams has like the better track record for producing, you know, just hit after hit in terms of soundtracks and original scores um when it comes to the lord of the rings trilogy i feel like howard short just understood it to the to a degree that made the films feel realized you know it the the music never detracts from any of the scenes in fact it adds to the emotional emotional resonance of a lot of the film right so so yeah with the score in these films for me, it's much more than just a background track. Mm-hmm. I feel like it enhances the scene, and I feel like I feel like the movies would be a lot different without them. Yeah, I mean, try to. I can't picture the movies without certain scenes. Like you know, we're we're talking about the the scene with Mary and Pippin uh, taking fireworks, and I hear their theme in the background in my head, like da da. You know, it's their little mischievous uh, leitmotif that Howard Shore kind of like worked into their scenes a little bit. And sorry, you might you might hear a puppy in the background. My my in-laws bought a puppy recently and uh, he's she's barking like crazy. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. So you'll you'll have to live with that podcast listener. Man, the the Howard the Howard Shore scores for these three films are you know just music, you know, and it it's it brings life to these films similarly to the way that like John Williams brought life to the Star Wars universe through his music. Yeah, no, I I agree. The but the, the it just the music infuses itself. Like right. for me, it's different. Like it's just interwoven with the story i feel like it tells a story in, in itself um with i don't know with the moments like it just it feels well, right like it was perfectly placed for each scene i don't know if you've ever listened to it but one of my favorite uh podcasts is called the soundtrack show 
and um, he goes into the music of the Fellowship of the Ring specifically um, in like a two or three part series. And he talks about how Howard Shore was literally on set like most of the time that they were filming and just like trying to get like the music down. He wanted, which is rare for um, a composer to like actually be there on set while they're doing something like that but this is something that he really wanted to do uh, most of the time Good. composers will see like the finished product and then put music on top of it but he wanted to live the lord of the rings and he did you know like the fact that he brought these movies together through sound and stuff is pretty cool and a lot of it is um i think it's called diegetic i, I might be getting that wrong let me just look that up really quick yeah sure okay yeah so yeah it's called diegetic music he um a lot of the music in the movie that uh we hear are themes that the audience or like the actual characters in the stuff in the in the film can hear or were singing in previous scenes so like you you have um the song that uh gandalf is singing the road goes ever on and on. Uh, when he shows up, that's that's the music that's playing in the background of that scene. You know, he like Howard Shore wrote the music, but then put the the songs that were like written down by Tolkien in in the actual film. So it's diegetic music. So it's like it exists in the real world and in the fictional world at the same time. So um, stuff like that's pretty cool. Yeah. I agree. I, I think that, like I said, the movies would feel completely different without it. Yeah. Um, all right. So Bilbo, Bilbo has been trying uh, long and hard to find a way to leave. He's itching to go on another adventure. Gandalf has known about his, his plans for some time, it seems, you know, uh, when when he's visiting Bilbo, he says, "Oh, so you're still going through with your plans? And what about the ring? Are you leaving that to Frodo too?" And Bilbo obviously has like a clear addiction to whatever power the ring has on him, you know. And it, it makes sense, you know. There's addictive properties to it, and I think the 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 film does a really good job. I, I forget if the book does it as well, but the film does a really good job of like showing the personality of someone who has a dependency on something yeah and i think it touches on that in like a pretty profound way you know like it it, it doesn't shy away from addiction which is clearly what the ring does to people right he has like a he has like a golem moment with it yeah uh, a couple times precious. actually yeah a couple times so when it comes to like actually finally making the the plan to like leave you know he has this party he invites everyone basically like he knows in the entire shire and just says uh time to go and while he's saying that he's like looking directly into frodo's eyes like he he clearly has a lot of love for his adoptive nephew um frodo and we learn why later on in the film where he tells Frodo like uh, the reason I adopted you is because you were a lot like me you know or some some iteration of like that idea that concept right and what that really means isn't that he has the same personality but the fact that he requires more from the world 
At least that's how I, I interpreted it. So, I, I you know, the, the whole Shire stuff is super meaningful for me because you have this uh, lovely, happy life that you could be totally content with. But the wider yeah. world is waiting for you. And I, I kind of feel that way about, like, you know, people who never leave their country or never go on vacation. It's like... Yeah, you could be perfectly content. You you don't have to ever leave uh, your your small little corner of the world, and you can live a happy life. But there's so much more to see in the world, and once you get out, once you get out of the door, um, you, you start to to realize what you've been missing, you know. And I think that's why. And I'm this is going to be a controversial opinion. I I believe Fellowship is my favorite movie. Um, of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which effectively makes it my favorite movie of all time, because the Lord of the Rings trilogy is my favorite movies of all time. I I say that Fellowship is my favorite because it's the film purely about adventure. By the time that the Fellowship breaks in the two towers, and by the time of uh, the desperation that ensues in Return of the King, the characters are beaten down. There's no there's no urge to go on with the, the story besides like actual need, you know, but in this first film, there's still like a longing to see the world. You know, you still have the hobbits like discovering things and you're discovering things with the hobbit. I love that about the film. The fact that like you walk, uh, they're walking and Sam stops and just like, this is the farthest I've ever been away from home. It's such a powerful little moment, you know, because it's, it's this little guy who's never stepped out of his comfort zone and is kind of being forced by Gandalf to do so. But he's willing to do <laughs> yeah. he's willing to do it because it means um, that he's helping Mr. Frodo, his best friend. And, oh, man, there's so I can just I can talk and like wax poetic about this, I, this film I, I, for, for ages. But that moment is one that gets me because it, it's just like. You're doing this uh, not only for Frodo, but also for you. You're going on an adventure and you're learning about the world around you. And I, it's it's really cool. Um, I, I love it when uh, when Sam gets caught eavesdropping. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't been dropping no eaves, sir. <laughs> and he was... Uh, he said that he was trimming the, the like bushes. Yeah. <laughs> a little a little late to be trimming the hedge or something like that yeah oh one one cool little thing that i notice and i notice every time is that the ring realizes that bilbo is leaving the shire so after after he puts the ring on and disappears and he has that like like moment uh that he's he goes back to the the house and gandalf is just like you think you're terribly clever don't you and you know they they have that little moment where it's like you want the ring for yourself it's mine it's my precious i love that moment with gandalf because that's when you start to really see his power like shine a little bit you know when he like turns the room dark and he starts talking with like a booming voice oh yeah that was like a really that was a cool moment it's it's one that like always gives me chills because like the music stops it's just you it's like the pressure's rising in the room and bilbo just cowers but and it's almost like a parent with a child you know like they don't want to be angry with the person but you need to kind of 
have a little bit of a temper if you're going to teach them anything. Or you need to kind of put them in their place occasionally. And that's what Gandalf did. And I love how Bilbo kind of like cowers and hugs Gandalf like, I'm so sorry. You know, that's, right, and it just goes right. to show their relationship. Right, yeah, like Gandalf's like, you think I'm a conjurer of some cheap tricks? And like, it's like, yeah, like, it, it, like really imposing in that moment. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a really good scene. It's also a really good use of like camera angles to make Gandalf look much bigger than Bilbo and stuff. Oh yeah. But uh, yeah, when 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 Bilbo's leaving the house and Gandalf's like, Bilbo, the ring is still in your pocket, and it's supposed to be left for Frodo. The ring, the ring knows that he's leaving. The ring knows he's going closer to Mordor, and doesn't want him to leave without it so Bilbo takes the ring out and he starts turning his hand and it, his hand is like vertical like he, he turns it in a way that it's like his palm uh, is, is now like vertical to the ground and the ring doesn't want to slip off but it starts like slowly like almost like a magnetic pull like yeah. and it hits the ground and instead of bouncing it just like lies flat it's just it's such a weird moment and it, it's filmed that way to make it seem as though the ring has a, a mind of its own and a, a almost physics of its own because it doesn't bounce in that moment it doesn't fall with gravity like a normal object would so right yeah it's, and it's cool and it um it like displays the heaviness of it too which comes into play later on in the movie like later on <laughs> the series yeah, you start to realize that the ring is gaining power as Sauron is gaining power. So over the 60 years that Bilbo's had the ring, Sauron has been particularly weak. You know, it, the ring has kept him uh, alive and stuff. And Bilbo has like, you know, put it on occasionally. But with the the wraiths being released into, you know, onto Middle-earth to go find uh, Baggins in the Shire and Sauron ready to unleash his armies, the ring has more power now. It's almost like it's drawing a hold on Bilbo and then eventually on Frodo. Frodo holds the ring for much less than Bilbo does. Yeah. But by the end, Frodo is like much more of a junkie, I would say, than Bilbo was, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, that, that moment when the wraiths come was a crazy moment because... This is when you first, like, this is when you really, like, first see them, um, you know, coming across our our heroes. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing them as a kid and thinking, man, these things are really creepy. Yeah. And there's, they, they do, like, like uh, they find really creepy ways to make them even creepier, you know? And what's cool is that this is like when we first start to get uh, an understanding of what the threat is of the movie, you know? And by like, if you're watching the extended editions, you're, you're a good 30 minutes, 40 minutes into the film before there's even a threat. And, which, you know, it's fine because you have lovely storytelling, you know, throughout the films. But, you know, Gandalf leaves for a short period of time, goes to, not Isengard, he goes to Minas Tirith, in Gondor, yeah. he does some research on the ring because, you know, he tried to touch it, but he saw the Eye of Sauron and he's just like, that's not right. 
So he does some some quick fact checking and he realizes that the ring that he has is probably the one ring to rule them all. The one ring to bind them. The one ring to bring them all. Gandalf swings back. He's kind of crazed, obviously. He realizes that he probably kind of made a big error in not realizing that Bilbo had a very powerful magical ring right. <laughs> for many years. And, you know, he has Frodo cast the ring into the fire. Yeah, I know. Yeah, he comes in. He's like, where's the ring? Do you have it? Have you kept it safe? Is it like, secret? Just, like, Is it safe? Yeah, like super just unkempt, like all crazy looking. So they throw it into the fire and uh, we we have the writing on the ring start to appear, which is, first of all, such a beautiful design. Like, um, I don't think there will ever be a time in the future where you can go back to these films and think, wow, these sets and stuff and, and props don't look real because they do. They look like 100% fantasy. And right. the, the, the writing on the ring is beautiful. Um, even though it's supposed to be like the, you know, black speech of Mordor and stuff. It's such a cool logo. Uh, I know, man. It's, it's more like the beautiful speech of Mordor. <laughs> the beautiful text. The beautiful script of Mordor. The, yeah, there you go. The, the, the beautiful script of Mordor. Yeah, it, it was really cool. And uh, just the effect of the the inscription coming about like when they threw it in the fire like that didn't look cheap either that looked so real what it's kind of amazing how the special effects on this film haven't become or the this trilogy even hasn't become outdated there are certain scenes like when you look at like a macro level of like battle scenes and stuff like the people running in the background look computer generated but for the most part, the actual like if it like a computer effect that is shown, like the ring, you know, gr- uh, showing its script on it, holds its like weight. Like it, it doesn't look like it's outdated at all, and that's that's an amazing feat because it was like at the start or like you know one of the first films in that decade to like really start using special effects really heavily. Speaking of that. Something that that I've watched and I absolutely like, I absolutely love them, is all the bonus discs that come with the extended edition, and mm-hmm. it really like, I mean, you're you're paying for like all the behind the scenes. I mean, they tell you everything, like it it, it they tell it shows like how painstakingly the process was in making these films. Like it it, it shows a lot of you know building the sets and building a lot of the weapons and the armor and the clothing you know the tailoring the blacksmithing the leather working it's it's so worth actually watching i don't know if you've watched them i haven't watched all of it but i've definitely watched some of them i i did it for the two towers because and and we'll talk more about it, but I, I always thought that Ro, um, Rohan was such a beautiful like that horse, you know, the horse people and yeah. their lands and just a lot of you know the lore behind it. There's so much lore behind even the designs 
Yeah, I, I think that we'll have to touch on that. I um, I love Rohan. It, it has such a... I, I don't even know the word. Earthy feel, you know? Like, it's... Yeah, it's, yeah it, it like, living off the land. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a cool culture. It's very, very um, like, middle age, but, like, it's, it's not really... A city, it, like I, I always saw, like it's more if of you fort. think about it, if you thought about it in the terms of, you know, Game of Thrones, Minas Tirith was, is more like King's Landing, and Rohan is more along the lines of, or at least the city was something smaller, like, um, like Winterfell. Yeah, I can know? see what you're saying. Yeah, where it's kind of like enclosed or whatever. Even though they have like their own kings and stuff, but yeah, for the most part, they are interconnected mm-hmm. down the line. Um, but yeah, I I, uh, I just I love the designs behind the sets, you know, and yeah, just like simple as the clothing. Yeah, no, everything is is so well uh, put together and. They, they, everything seemed like they thought about for an extended period of time. Right. They had so many people on board and it, they must have been a really just, they must have been extremely cohesive for what they produced. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I can't imagine the amount of work that went into these films, but I'm so appreciative that they did go like as, yeah, as hard as they did, but just because the final product is something, you know, almost 20 years later we're, we're talking about with just pure awe and all right so let's let's go back to the, the the film uh let's skip ahead a little bit to when frodo and sam are on the road they they meet up with <laughs> mary and pippin who are stealing uh fruits and vegetables from uh farmer maggot's crop and they find themselves on the road where gandalf told them not to be and they they like hide behind the root of this tree, and that's where they first the the four hobbits first encounter the Nazgul, the the Ringwraith. Yeah. And dude, that is one of the creepiest scenes in the entire trilogy, and it just comes out of nowhere because it's like right. we're we're laughing at the fact that like Mer- or yeah, uh, Pippin's almost being pushed down into like uh, a pile of dung, um, and then. <laughs> You know, like, I think I've broken something. And it's a carrot. <laughs> um, and and then all of a sudden, like, the music kind of, like, gets super eerie and quiet. A horse draws up and, like, his hooves are so badly, like, put into place. The, like, the hooves are bleeding because of uh, uh, nails right, that and are, like, like, digging into it. sticking out, yeah. Oh, it's, it's... It, you know it gives you chills that just like thinking about that scene and then um the nazgul like kind of like leans over the 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 root of the tree and it starts sniffing and it's almost like death you know it's almost like the bugs of the earth are coming up like it's like it's raining you know and it's so creepy but for whatever reason frodo is like drawn to the ring because of the power of the ring wraith and the connection that the ring has to them so he he almost draws attention to the fact that the ring is there and you know the ring wraith can kind of tell yeah so that like and sam like stops him in that moment 
and then uh was it uh yeah mary they uh he throws uh, the bag of uh, a bag of vegetables that catches uh that catches the attention of the ring wraith right i don't know how he fell for that but he did um <laughs> like how did how did they like get away you know like how far did he throw that bag of vegetables like how did he f- <laughs> it was like so cartoonish but <laughs> oh what was that goes over there finds a bag of vegetables dang it not again one thing we didn't touch it upon and this is something that's like just something that's been added to the extended edition it doesn't actually affect the film at all per se but it's it's a it's a nice little touchstone piece about like sam and and frodo and like what they're experiencing as they're exploring the wider world is like when the elves show up um and they're they're you know singing their lament of the elves and they're they're dry they're going off to the west and yeah it's it's just kind of like um a beautiful little moment that you can't really explain because we we don't know the mentality or the rationale of the elves and neither do um sam or frodo but right. sam realizes that it's like a sad moment and it's something that like the world is losing by the elves going to the undying lands you know right yeah no i agree i do like that moment and the hobbits aren't completely ignorant because sam is like oh like he heard it like he knew where Mm -hmm. they were going um he had heard the stories you know so like actually seeing it and they were um you know very like amazed or like oh my goodness you know it's elves like they haven't they hadn't seen elves before yeah it's crazy yeah it was yeah i actually i really did like that moment too and that that moment did foster, kind of foster that sadness because you kind of felt it in that moment. You're like, you know what? He is right. Like they're they're leaving. They they no longer want to be you know a part of their world. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. We'll talk more about the elves uh, later, and especially as the as as these podcasts go on. But um, all right, so. They, they make it across the river. They're running from the ringwraiths. They make it into... Uh, they make it over, like, the Huckleberry Ferry. You know, just barely, you know, with the ringwraith at their heels. And the water stops them. This is our first glimpse that water seems to be something that they don't particularly like. So, yeah. they make it into this other town. They're going to a, an inn Bree. called... Yeah, they're in Bree. They, they they go to the Prancing Pony to meet up with Gandalf. I don't, dude. It's the weirdest thing. I keep in my head calling Gandalf Daredevil. It doesn't make any sense. But like, I keep <laughs> checking myself whenever I say Gandalf. Like, I pause for like a brief second. I'm like, why am I about to say Daredevil? So, so yeah, uh, they're at the Prancing Pony. They're waiting for Murdoch and um, uh, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Avocados um, well, at law was it in in this moment like during their adventure or during their uh their trek there gandalf goes to isengard to let uh saruman pretty much like his boss know about that the ring was found and um 
this is where we find out that Saruman is actually in league with uh, Sauron. So they have like yeah. a battle, and so that that's why Gandalf is not there, um, you know, to meet the hobbits. Why he's like held up. And you know, this scene is interesting for a number of reasons. But um, as Gandalf is pulling up to Isengard, you, you see like a aerial view of Gandalf riding up to the tower and you hear Saruman uh, Christopher Lee's narration of what's so going good. on and all of a sudden you you see that he's not only narrating but it's the line that he eventually ends by speaking aloud to Gandalf so clearly the narration um, like the music itself in the film is diegetic so he's talking and Gandalf is hearing Saruman like speak these things and then his the, as Gandalf pulls up he says the final things out loud like with his normal uh speech and it just goes to show the difference between Gandalf and Saruman because Gandalf needs uh some sort of like provocation to let his fireworks go a little bit when he enters Hobbiton like you know people are expectant and he as as he's riding through Hobbiton he's not like trying to show off or anything he's he looks like a very humble dude. Yeah. Um, but it's not until the kids like want to see some amazing fireworks that Gandalf, you know, shows off a little bit. But we see Gandalf ride up to Isengard and Saruman is like the least humble person ever. It just goes to show like the difference in their personality because he's yeah. showing off his ability to like project his booming Christopher Lee voice uh, yeah, uh, to Gandalf um even before gandalf shows up it's almost like he's putting gandalf in his place like that he's the he's the white wizard you know for real and then you know count dooku and magneto get locked into about oh wait wrong i i just crossed beams there um <laughs> i crossed it even more there by making a ghostbusters reference um <laughs> um but yeah they uh he finds out that uh, Gandalf finds out that Saruman has a uh, Palantir. Palantir, yeah. Which is uh, it's a seeing stone, and yeah, it, there's so a bunch like of a them. So, so there's like they're rare, and they allow you to, I guess, you know, see across. I don't know, like they don't explain too much on them, but they're rare and they're but they're dangerous to have yeah because you don't know who's looking and we learn again it's one of those things that like they did not need to give us this much background about a, a crystal ball you know <laughs> but there's there's dialogue there's lore there's lore that's built into these the dialogue of this scene that just expands the world even more you know uh, one of the lost seeing stones They're, they haven't all been accounted for uh, right. you know like you don't know who's watching on the other side you know because apparently it's a two way street almost sort of thing so it's such a, a, a every little detail in this movie in, these, in this trilogy is just something that they thought about and you know it's it's through the power and the, the magic of you know Tol Tolkien's writings that um, inspired Jackson to go as hard as he did you know but like everything 
everything has a purpose and you know we we get to see more of the palantir in action later on you know like this is setting up stuff in the two towers that that shows up later you know yeah or no sorry uh, return of the king uh well i mean it it sets up for the rest also i mean it's yeah like, yeah yeah it's like a domino effect so gandalf and uh saruman have a wizard battle and it's a kind of a weird wizard battle you know you know you don't really understand what's happening but it's interesting it's like a force battle yeah it's a force battle actually but i <laughs> love like, how it's, it's like obi-wan and anakin essentially yeah yeah and i love how when gandalf puts the the cloth over the palantir and he gets a vision of the eye he suddenly realizes his friend is not his friend anymore yeah he realizes that uh saruman has you know struck a deal or an alliance with saruman or sauron and it's it's gonna get messy so he immediately tries to leave and all four doors close and they have this crazy uh wizard battle where they're throwing each other around this very uncomfortable looking room i know what saruman does to him is like so weird that spinning thing just like spins him (laughs) like it's almost like he's spinning him like on like uh, his axis is his head and he's just like spinning around like that Um, i know he's just like it just keeps on spinning and then like put throws him up into the roof i have a question how he's on top of it i have a question for you because this is something that i started like digging into this past time that i've that i watched the film I thought it was a plot hole and I was just like, wait a minute, what is going on? So by the end of the wizard duel, Saruman takes Gandalf's staff and his own and lifts them up into the, like the, onto the roof of the building. How does Gandalf get his staff back? Because we see that he jumps off onto one of the eagles later on. Oh, that's a good question they actually answer it not in lord of the rings they answer it in the hobbit okay so i have to i have to pull back a little bit so in the beginning half of this film gandalf has a staff and in his staff uh it houses where he keeps his like little pipe his smoking his his smoking pipe it's kind of weird but like if you pause it at certain times you can see his pipe like at the top of his staff like mm. just kind of like entwined in the roots of his staff and stuff. So that's the staff that Saruman uh, uses against him. But later on in the film, when Gandalf is uh, in Rivendell and later on in Moria and stuff, he has a very similar staff, but it's slightly different. The, the top of it seems to be more opened up, even though it's still like the same type of wood and stuff. So I was just like, did he make another staff? It, it looks very similar. I realized, and I started looking it up, and apparently Radagast, the Radagast the Brown, the wizard that right. Gandalf meets in uh, the Hobbit movies, played by Sylvester McCoy, his staff is the, is the second one that Gandalf has in the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh. So when he jumped onto the eagles he immediately went over to radagast radagast gave him his staff and that's what he uses up until he becomes gandalf the white oh okay so 
I don't know. I thought that that was like a, just a mind blowing detail. Like the fact that they even thought about like fixing a little potential plot hole, even though it wasn't a plot hole because it was a different staff technically. Dang. Peter Jackson covers his bases, bro. Dang. He's like, no plot holes here. Um, <laughs> I ain't yeah. dropping no plot holes, sir. Yeah, that's something that, like, with how smooth the film is, like, you, you just don't think about stuff like that. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, you, you're right. That That's that's some good digging. Yeah, I, I, I might make a video about that just because it's something I've never heard about, you know? I think it could be a cool little four-minute video or something like that. Yeah, no, exactly. So so that was happening, and uh, the Hobbits are still at the uh, Prancing Pony waiting for us to talk more about them. They're taking the Hobbits to Isengard! <laughs> Remember that song? <laughs> oh, yes, I do. Um, They're taking the say? Hobbits to Isengard! They're taking the Hobbits to Isengard! <laughs> Did you ever see the video of uh, Orlando Bloom dancing to that song on the side no, of the Hobbit? No, yeah, yeah. He uh, he finds the the song online, and while they're filming his scenes in uh, the Hobbit movies, he's like singing, "They're taking the Hobbits to Isengard." <laughs> so that's cool. <laughs> All right, uh, we meet some unsavory characters, or are they, at the Prancing Pony Inn? Uh, while they're waiting for Gandalf. I know, know giving Frodo the stink eye in the corner, you know? Yeah, and it's interesting because we don't really know much. or, And I, I appreciate the way they introduced uh, Aragorn or Strider in this scene. Um, yeah. And I, I like the fact that like certain characters have multiple names given to them, depending on who they're known by. And it, was, it seems very natural in this world to have different different titles and stuff like some people i think the the rohirrim the the people of rohan call gandalf mithrandil and stuff oh, like that oh yeah Dude, i love that i actually love that nickname it's a cool nickname if anyone decides to that they want to call me mithrandil i'll accept it <laughs> i know that yeah but yeah so they they call this guy strider uh and he's a dangerous folk He's also, you know, the heir of a Isildur. ranger from the. He's also one of those rangers. The one yeah. From, I, I, oh my gosh, dude! Just the names. I'm telling you, like, there's just so much to. Like, you you can't hate this series. I mean, I know people who do, but well, not hate, <laughs> but they just don't care for it. They're I wrong. Just, you know, they're wrong. Yeah, just next time wrong. they tell you that, they're, you're wrong. Sorry. I know, like, like his, the ranger, the his people, like, I mean, the name sounds so cool, too. Uh, Dunedain. Oh, yeah, dude. The, the language that this guy infuses is so realized, you know? It doesn't sound like a fictional world. It sounds no, like... it doesn't. It sounds like, you know, you're in, like, some... It, some bridge between Norse mythology and like ancient uh, or like medieval England, you know, like it, it feels and it, it just... and it like and it expands so much more like outside the movies too because like there's like the 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 video games like uh, I was talking about Battle for Middle Earth and I remember that they had the you, you know the oily oily fonts the oily um, fonts yeah yeah. But they're but they're really called Mumakil, 
Yeah. And I learned it from that game. I was like, what? I was like, oh, they're called Mumakill? Oh, I didn't know that. I learned yeah. it from the game. So, like, it expands, like, that, that world expands so much. And let me tell you, I'm going to be a day oneer when that TV show comes out. Oh, dude, you you and half the freaking world. That's going to be that's going to be huge. Dude, the fact that what was it? I think the the first season of the show is going to cost like 250 million dollars, which is the most ever. Let me just double check that. Okay, hold on, hold on. It gets crazier. As of April 16th of this year, Amazon's Lord of the Rings series will cost at least four hundred and sixty-five million dollars for the first season. For the first season, oh my gosh! Half a billion dollars they're throwing into this this first season. Oh my gosh, dude! That's like more than that's the that's more than the production of like movies. I'm I'm just gonna double check and see how much the Lord of the Rings trilogy cost to make. I really am hoping that if they're dumping this much money, that they are really taking the care that they need. Bring up, bring everybody back on board. Don't don't pull the Hobbit. Try try to do what you can in recreating. Like you're not gonna be able to recreate what the Lord of the Rings did, but you can still take some of that magic and infuse it. And maybe have you know like a fresh take. Yeah. Okay. So and I, I know it's going to be before, before the events of the films. Yeah. So all right. So let's put this into perspective. The upcoming Lord of the Rings series will cost four hundred and sixty-five million in only its first season. Ooh, man. The Lord of the Rings trilogy together cost less than three hundred million to produce. So the first season of this show is costing more than the entire t- movie trilogy cost for them to make. So yeah, those things are awesome. Either either this trilogy is, or either this uh, new show is going to just be like the most beautiful turd ever, or <laughs> it better be amazing. You know, it better <laughs> the be most beautiful turd ever, oh dude. Gosh. It's going to be a glittering pile this, this... of manure. The, 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 this this TV show will either be completely amazing or just a turd that's filmed in New Zealand. A turd that shines, yeah. <laughs> so the the hobbits they they meet Strider, aka Aragorn. They don't know that right away. Aragorn saves them from an encounter with the ring wraiths at the end. So there there's that introduction. At this point, um, there's there's that scene that's you know, it, it, we learn a little bit more about what the ring raids are. We learn that they're like kings of men um, that were right. corrupted by the rings of power that were given to them by Sauron, and it just again you know every every little detail just blows my mind uh, with this world and like the fact that they're just like. Literally, just wraiths of their former selves hunting down Frodo and Sam, and they they kind of trick uh, the ring wraiths into you know pretending that they're in one inn, but really they they appear to have like moved to another inn to like get a vantage point on like to see if they would you know hunt them down this way. I know, man. These, these things are like it's like too easy to fool. 
They are. Bags of vegetables <laughs> and the quick like slip, you know, they like slipped out like on them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you Those know, with the help not of... not good agents of darkness. Uh, no, but they are They're creepy. creepy. Yeah. I feel bad for the guy who was like, you know, manning the gate and they just squashed him. Oh, yeah. In uh, Brie. Yes. Yeah, I felt bad for that guy. They just trampled him. They just... Uh, they just, like, stepped all up on him. Who goes there? <laughs> all right, let's jump ahead. Uh, you know, they're they're on their way. They're heading towards uh, Rivendell, Master Gamgee. To, to see the elves or something like that to the house of Elrond I love I love this moment in the film because it's still before any immediate danger you know it's there's still moments before anyone has gotten seriously hurt that we know of um, obviously Gandalf has been uh, hurt and enslaved at this point but um, we don't know that at this stage but when when you know they're they're going over to weathertop and stuff it's there that's that sense of adventure is still there and it's fresh for them you know it's a new day they they have a new traveling companion who actually knows the way to where they're actually headed and stuff and it's there's a sense of excitement among them you know right yeah i love that stuff and then they go to weathertop where they make some mistakes yeah i know Having a nice little barbecue on the side. And, some uh, nice crispy bacon. <laughs> I know. I saved some for, for you, Mr. Frodo. Yeah, the, the ring rates catch up and the hobbits done messed up because uh, they alerted them of that, you know, of where they were. And it's, I find it hilarious because like, for, like out of all the hobbits, like, I mean, you would think maybe Sam, but like Frodo's the only one that's like, Nah, man, you need to put this out because we're trying to hide. Uh, but they're like, Nah, man, let's just open up a open up a fire. And not even Sam was like, Yeah, you, you know, you know, don't do that. He learns though. He definitely learns. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Well, he, you know he, what I think it is? I think it's Frodo's the only one who really has a grasp of the power and the danger of the ring. You know, when he was right, because he 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 accidentally uses the ring inside the that uh the, the tavern yeah the inn um which is why the ring rates looked there first right because whenever it's used they're drawn to the like use of power or mm-hmm. it's like a surge in power and so that, yeah, that effect like, that effect is so cool uh when he puts the ring on and it's just like it's almost like another dimension that he enters or a plane right. of existence and it's just like uh, everything's kind of blurred and like wispy and it's it's pretty cool right right yeah and he turns invisible so yeah he thinks he, thinks he can do that for uh, on weathertop to get away from the ring raids right right so and that th- this was a, a, a cool effect he he uh, puts it on in weathertop and when he looks at the ring raids he sees what they really what they really are which are like you know like dead kings that are locked in this lifelong servitude to Sauron, you know, because of the yeah. rings. It's such and, a cool um, effect. And it's just like, it really was, it's almost like negative, you know, a uh, negative reality because they're like 
wreathed in white and they're like almost they are glowing you know right and like that sound it makes when he's in that like new that other dimension yeah yeah it's really crazy and uh frodo gets stabbed by like the i guess well not the leader then but becomes the leader because of that no i think he was um the leader of the nazgul at the time the um he was the witch king of angmar that stabbed um that stabbed frodo right he but i don't i don't know if he became the witch king afterwards because it was like after that where he got that new get up and his new um weapon and all that stuff I have to you look may be right that. yeah you may be right actually i i don't have an answer to that so you you're probably um so i may be right it may be wrong but never nevertheless um frodo gets stabbed by a morgul blade yes and, and that kind of sets the plot into hyperdrive you know the story right. is kind of slow up until this point and then now it doesn't have the necessity of going slow anymore right right like they're they're um they're not trying to uh well aragorn saves them you know beats them up a little bit like it sets a couple on fire <laughs> the need to get to rivendell like heightens even more because frodo's in danger he's been poisoned by this morgul blade so they're like we got to get out of here yeah yeah it's it's pretty cool so they they get off weathertop they're searching for some remedy but frodo's kind of like losing it because he's like you said he's been stabbed by a morgul blade it's almost like it's it's not poison per se but it's almost like evil like it's an evil black hole that has been stabbed into him you know and it's sucking the life out of him it's making him become a wraith right it's a different type of poisoning it's not like the typical sense where it's like you can just take an antidote it's something that requires magic to get rid of right it's almost it's almost a curse or whatever right yeah that's a good way of putting it and like you could see it the effect his eyes that the ways that his eyes were changing Mm-hmm. and um, was, skin was getting pale he was getting vain right and uh they use this thing called king's foil to kind of like slow the effect king's foil so, yeah that's a weed yeah of course of course the gardener would know right right sean Aston. i think in uh for return of the king he won the academy award for best supporting actor dude he carried that film as he carried frodo up mordor yeah, he he did such a good job. His his like character like by the end of the series, he's like one of the most like beloved out of you know like you just there's something that to love about Sam, especially by the time you get to the end, because I mean he does like he goes through a lot like everybody else, but I feel like he goes through more. Well, he does he. He does, and I, I think we'll have to get into that. It yeah, doesn't we'll, really we'll, touch we'll on that in this film particularly, right? But especially in the other films, he starts having to carry not only his own weight but Frodo's, and you know, on occasion, the you're gonna have to slights add that of Gollum. Clip. You're gonna have to add that sound clip when we get to Return of the King. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you, dude. Sam is Sam is the goat. Oh, oh, looks like we have a special guest coming out of her little dungeon. Uh, Jen, hi. 
Would you like to talk a little bit about specifically the first half of Fellowship of the Ring? Like, what is what is it that uh, makes the movie tick for you? Um, I guess what makes the movie tick for me is just like all of the the character depth that they give to the little hobbits. You just see so many different personalities in that party scene. And even though, you know, they all have like a, you know, they kind of give a general description of what hobbits are like. You just see like the grumpy hobbits, the party hobbits, the kid hobbits. Those kids are so cute. Like (laughs) absurdly cute children. And yeah, I just love it. I was actually, I've been reading the book and I love the scene where Frodo asks how they know he's leaving. And the hobbits say that Frodo just like would stare longingly at different parts of the Shire and be like, I'm never going to see this field again, like under his breath. (laughs) But they, they all heard him and they were like, where is he going? But they didn't know where he was going. They just knew they didn't want him to go alone. And they just decided, okay, we're going to go with him. It's just, it's friendship. It's wholesome. It's lovely. And I want to live there. And Hobbiton specifically? Yes. All right. And that's my sense. That, Gotta go. That's your two cents? All right. Thank so you, Jen. So Jen is in a D&D campaign right now. Uh, she meets Thursdays, which is usually the day that we film. Um, but Jen, we'll have to have you for a future discussion of Lord of the Rings, if you're if you're willing. Yes. All right. Now that she's out of our way, we can get back to the <laughs> true discussion. No, just kidding. I always love when she has a... Uh, uh, say in the podcast whatever so um, of course. What, what were we talking about oh so uh king's foil and you know the fact that yeah king's Frodo... foil and uh arwen comes along yeah what's so weird about that scene for me is you know you know that there's something between aragorn and this girl and she's just kind of like wasting time for she, like, like 10 she, minutes like, pulls up and like put like draws her sword onto him yeah like this is a time to like flirt and like play some game that only he would know but it kind of works in the moment especially the first time you see it because you don't know who she is you don't know what her intentions are but she turns out to be you know apparently a very good writer and she is able to take Frodo to Rivendell in a short period of time we don't know how long it actually takes her but apparently it's a three days walk to Rivendell from where they are yeah, so that that's probably if that's a three days walk, riding probably like kind of cuts that in half. So I mean, it's still a long time. Yeah, I would say maybe about a day. You know, considering you know horses. Can a day, go, yeah, a day to a day and a half, maybe. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Between that, yeah, it's still it's still a long bit of time. What are you doing? I like that moment at the river that she has with the. With the uh, ring rates, where she speaks the uh, elven, like she like uses like a spell, yeah, and then the the water comes rushing in its horses. It's such a cool scene, and like her the the way that the sound editing like makes her voice echo and like yeah reverberate over the water, and dude, it's so Uh, cool. And she taunts them, and this is where the previous knowledge of the fact that they're kind of scared of water comes into play, where she taunts them through the water and then, like, uses their supposed fear against them. It's so cool. So, I don't know if you noticed, or if you uh, ever saw it, but um, uh, Josh Gad had a series called Together Apart, or something like that. 
what during covid and one of the episodes was like they reunited the cast of fellowship of the ring or not fellowship of the ring but lord of the rings in general Liv tyler who plays arwen um still remembers like the elvish that she had to recite for that that scene and she was like she was excited to like uh you know say it say it aloud again that was pretty cool oh wow that's awesome yeah. i haven't seen it was that on youtube yeah, uh, Josh Gad's. I, I forget what the his show is called. I don't know if he's still doing it, but it's called. I think it's like something together apart, or whatever. And he brings like different casts and crew, you know, together to like relive memories of like their time on movie sets. Like they had an episode for Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where they got that cast back together, and uh, they had a few. Sorry, it's not called Together Apart. It's called Reunited Apart. I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah, it's it's worth it. It's it's a good it's a good time. They are finally in Rivendell. You know, they've gone on a pretty hectic little adventure. These four hobbits. Frodo has come back to health. We don't know how long he's been out of it. Maybe a couple days under Elrond's like care he's he's coming to although yeah it's it's worth noting that he'll never be the same frodo yeah will always have this kind of like evil ish poison curse thing from the morgul morgul blade um that will plague him till you know the day he dies i'm assuming but he's like no longer in like grave danger it's almost i i guess it's almost kind of like cancer you know where it's like they were able to take stage four cancer and just put it into remission somehow through the, through some act of magic, you know, like he was a dead man walking and they brought it back. But, you know, cancer, there's always uh, the opportunity for it to come back, you know, and I kind of that's how I've always seen the illness that he gains from the Morgan Blade. It's almost like it's almost like cancer. You know, I, I hate to make such a it's a touchy subject and i don't want to like harp on it any more than that but you try you kind of have to like make some parallels to real life if you're going to try to understand what the comparison to reality would be you know what i mean yeah no no i get you what are your thoughts on rivendell rivendell was like really like pretty really like visually appealing and they when it comes to the scenes with elves Especially that moment, that uh, scene that we were talking about earlier with the hobbits and the the wood elves, they really like knocked down the the music and like the cinematography. Like it kind of reminds me of, um, like I'm pretty sure that they took that essence, Blizzard took that essence and they injected it for the for the night elves, you know, which because explains... it has like that like wispy kind of like magical feeling like. Rivendell is like the most magical feeling place. Yeah, there's a sort of elation that you feel. You're almost it's almost like it's almost like it's slowed down and the the exposure's like brightened. You know, everything is super bright in Rivendell. Uh, every uh, like all the conversations seem to be like weightless a little bit, you know? There's there's a certain atmosphere to the location that does have some sort of magical aura about it and it, it it's you know heightened by the fact that the the sets that they built for rivendell were just so beautiful you know and yeah. most of the sets are like miniatures that they were able to like make look like bigger than they are but um, yeah, with some cg 
with some CG and, you know, like the makeup that they put on the elves, the the music um, that's like very uh, aural and orchestral, yeah, uh, not orchestral, yeah. but it's it's almost like it's very like what ethereal. I've come to right like it's it's what i've come to think of as elven music yeah choir type uh hymns and stuff but it's it's really cool the way that they manage to capture that feel for the elves and they they carry that even to uh lothlorien with uh, galadriel even though it's a different feel than rivendell it's still very elvish and you can you you can right. feel the two different cultures like they're drastically different but they're still like cousins you know right um, um it was almost as if uh galadriel they, they kind of reminded me a little bit more of like the night elves from world of warcraft or the night elves from world of warcraft kind of remind me of that because it was very like dark and like wispy kind of that area that they were in between that first scene of the elves like doing that wave of like slicing up their 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 swords in the battle of like mount doom three thousand years ago and the fact that legolas was such a sharp shooter that's that's the reason i decided to go with a night elf hunter in my world of warcraft career oh. it was just that like solidified it it was just the coolest thing to me as a as a young kid I know. I love that sound that the that that the bows would make, like whenever they released it. That like kind of, it's hard to explain. Yeah. I don't. But you can hear it, right? Like when you when I talk about it. Oh yeah, for sure. So a lot happens in Revendell that is worth talking. I think one thing that we should mention is the encounter with Bilbo. Oh um, yeah, yeah. We don't know exactly how much time passes between when he leaves for Rivendell or when he leaves Hobbiton and they meet him in Rivendell. So we can kind of presume a couple months have probably passed. Yeah, I was like, I can't assume it being like very long at all. No, and I don't think it's it's not supposed to feel very long. It's supposed to feel like, you know, it was the other day they they had seen each other last but you know if you consider the fact that gandalf left to go to gondor then came back to right, uh, right. check on the ring then you know then they went on this adventure he went to a sealed door they were traveling to brie he should have been at brie by that point the travel times probably take a long longer period of time than we are like given to to see on screen so it's probably been a month or two since Bilbo was seen last, but he's aged tremendously in the uh, intervening time because he doesn't have access to the ring anymore. Um, and it's worth noting before you know they head off on their next leg of the adventure, that one scene where Bilbo wants to see the ring again. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Man, that, that moment when I was a kid like really creeped me out. <laughs> yeah, that's that nightmare moment, fuel. Like, it, that moment was like pretty nightmarish. Like, especially, like, when he's, like, uh, you know, like, when he asks Frodo if he could see the ring, and uh, Frodo's like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And then, and then like, that really, like, that CG, like, face that they did was, oh, my God. That that, that was, like, one of those moments, like, like really creeps me out. Like, uh, 
Large Marge from Pee Wee's uh, Big Adventure <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> that like really creeped me out too. But that, um, that was like one of those moments that like really creeped me out. Uh, funny, funny thing in the in the second one when they're crossing the dead marshes and Gollum's like, "Don't look at the lights," and he does. Like Frodo, Frodo like kind of like looks into the bog and he sees the dead soldier and the soldier opens his eyes, and it's like glowing lights and it's just the creepiest thing ever. I remember I was in the movie theater with my grandfather, and he grabbed my arm so quick at that moment. He was just he just like grabbed both his 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 uh like arm stand and my arm and he just like gripped it really hard. I was like, ow <laughs> But you know, that's that's a moment that like I I remember as being like, holy cow, this is getting super scary. Was it uh yeah, remember remember seeing these at midnight, you know, when midnight showings were a thing? Dude, I kind of miss that, you know? Yeah, like, same. There's something about, like, an opening night where it was actually, like, you're going to see it at midnight, like, because that's when movies first that's started. That's, like, the day that it's, like, supposed to, like, really release. Yeah, it was now the first Now it's, like, showing. 7 o'clock the day before. Yeah, please, get out of here with that. It's not It's not fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, um, going back, going back, going back, going back. We going way you know, back. We're 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 getting off track. We're over two hours on our recording here. It's probably like an hour forty-five for you guys. But let's uh, let's start to wrap it up with the Council of Elrond. But before that, I think it's important to talk about the fact that you know Sam Sam has some moments that really shine in this in this scene, and also Gandalf too. Uh, Gandalf is is here. He kind of explains what happened to him with Saruman. And, you know, the bedside manner that he and Sam show Frodo just goes to show, like, how much they care for, for Frodo, you know? Yeah. At this point, all the hobbits think that their, their adventure is over and that they're going to be heading back. And I think there's a, way, a, a, a little bit of relief there. But I think Frodo realizes this isn't the end, you know? Because Sam is ready to pack up. He's ready to get going. He's just like... Well, we did what Gandalf wanted. We brought the ring to the elves. Well, and he's he's happy that he had this little adventure. But yeah. He's ready to go, you know? And you can't you can't fault the guy, you know? He did he did the thing that he was going to do and that's it. But Frodo realizes that there's more at stake and that becomes apparent when they finally, you know, yeah, go to the Council of Elrond. So, essentially the Council of Elrond is a gathering of uh, men, elves, dwarves, and the hobbits. And uh, they're trying to figure out what to do with the ring. They don't know what to do. They're, they're trying to come up with ideas. This is where you meet Boromir of Gondor and, you know, like Legolas and Gimli and, um, you know, Aragorn's there along with Gandalf and, and the you know, Elrond and the Hobbits. And so they're trying to, you know, figure out what to do. You know, they talk about, well, you know, we can, you know, try to do this. Let's try to smash it. Um, and they're like, nothing can destroy this except for, you know, the, the fires of Mount Doom. You know, I love, I love how into... Gimli tries to destroy it. Like, he's like, what are we waiting for? <laughs> right. And, and then it shatters the axe. 
Yeah. So yeah, they they're like, no, this has to. We have to bring this to to Mount Doom. You know, so so it becomes settled that you know they're they're gonna take it to to Mount Doom. What do you call it? Uh, so they they then they try to figure out who it is that's gonna bring it. And so they're like fighting over. They're like, oh, you know, no, I'm gonna do it. Um, no, I'll do it. And then what, this is before where... we before we like uh, express what Frodo does. I think it's important to also mention some of the other characters like Boromir and like his will to like when he finds out that the ring of power actually is here right um which you know he clearly knew some of that when he was coming to the to rivendell because his people have been at war with the armies of mordor for the past uh i don't know how long but it's it seems like um osgiliath been a while now yeah osgiliath has been under siege for it looks like years, maybe months. I don't know how long it is, but he's looking for some relief for his people, and he feel he feels that the ring can offer relief to his people. So he comes with the mission, and his mission is to help his people, and then they'll um, throw the ring into Mordor or Mount Doom. Right. And it's interesting because Boromir isn't a bad guy, but. He's blinded by his love for his people. He's blinded by the power, the hold that um, the the power of the ring has on specifically humans and men. And it's it's at first he seems like this villainous character, especially when he's going totally against the will of the council. And you know he is in the wrong clearly. Right. You you start to feel bad for him by the end of the movie for sure. Because he makes yeah. some terrible decisions that cost him uh, the trust of you know the people that are most important to the plot. Right, so, right. You know, we'll we'll like talk more about that. Um, you know, the next, next part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frodo pipes up, or Frodo chimes in, says, "I'll take it. I will and, take it. Uh, I will take the ring to Mordor." And so, uh, do the hobbits? agree to join before or after the rest of them say because i know that um uh like i, I like the moment where you know uh like legolas is like you'll have my bow and then the game is like and my axe yeah so that's they the hobbits show up after all of that after the fellowship is officially made in that moment where frodo um interjects the crowd you know, the crowd is like kind of going wild. Uh, people are arguing about like uh, Gimli. You can hear Gimli saying like, no one trusts an elf. And, you yeah. know, you have stuff like that. It's pretty clear that there is no one willing to make the sacrifice. Or or perhaps it's, it's too... Everyone's will to do whatever they want to do with the ring is self-serving yeah and and or based on some prejudice against another race but when you know the lowliest the weakest of everyone at the council chimes in who has no skin in the game whatsoever frodo is literally just he's a hobbit you know he's 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 just the guy who ferried the ring over to these these people when he shows his uh willingness to do what he does it's just one of the most heartwarming 
moments in the film because you could see it in Gandalf's face. His heart breaks because he knows what yeah. it means. Yeah. Like you he, see it in his face. Uh, um, Gan- Gandalf understands the the like that the 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 journey is not going to be an easy one that it's going to be very hard yeah but he knows i think deep down um especially after talking to elrond and elrond was like you know the hobbit shows a remarkable resilience to the ring he knows deep down frodo is the one who needs to take it there and you you can tell like the confirmation wasn't it still wasn't easy for him no, and he like closes his eyes like, oh, please, no. And then he turns around and sees Frodo, you know, say like, I will take the ring again. And uh, I will, but but I don't know the way. And Gandalf is just like, well, if Frodo's going, I have to go. I will help you there. And then, you know, you have the classic, you'll, and you have my sword and my bow and my axe. And then, uh, we're coming too. <laughs> I know. And then like... Um, what's it? I think Elrond just like kind of looking at them at like at like with like disgust a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think uh, the the last thing that we should talk about before we close up uh, our discussion here is well, first of all, how cool it was when Gandalf started uh, speaking the the black speech at that scene just to like scare everyone uh, out of yeah. their skins, basically. Um, that's something that's strictly in the extended edition and. I think it's just such a memorable moment. Like, I wish that were in the movie theater, but I understand why. I know. It, yeah. Yeah. And it threw, like, everybody off. Yeah. And and Elrond's, like, never has the black speech of Mordor been uttered in, in, in this part of the world. And I, I was like, well, you know, if something doesn't happen soon, it'll be, <laughs> it'll be spoken everywhere. Um, or I think Gandalf actually says that. But uh, the scene where... Boromir shows up and he sees the blade that was broken by a sealed door. Oh, yeah. Um, Nar- Narcissil? The blade of... Yeah, let me look that up really quick. Because I think that um, when it's reforged, it's called uh, Anduin or something along those lines. Narsil. N-A-R-S-I-L. Narsil. So you're, you're right. Are you yeah, not. Narsil and then the and then it like refor it has a different name when it's reforged. Um, yeah, but yeah, Anduril is the name that they reforge it to. Right. Yeah. Uh, clo- another close but no cigar. Um, yeah, you're 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 right on the money there, but no cigar. Uh, so I love that scene because it's just it goes to show it's almost like he knows. Uh, Aragorn that is he knows that that's his birthright he knows that you know eventually he may be called to take up the call and use the blade in some way you know because they they do tell him it can be reforged and stuff but he doesn't want to take up that honor he doesn't want to be king of Gondor he has no aspirations of that fact and when Boromir grabs it and just kind of like shows it such disrespect even though it's like respect at first and then like he kind of like dismisses it as just some relic um he he has such care for it's almost a piece of himself you know yeah it's interesting it's it's an interesting moment i would i want i'm gonna rewatch it before we you know go into our next uh podcast next week just because it's such an interesting little parallel between that and what happens in um return of the king later i agree 
All right, so for the first time ever in Project Ecology history, so this episode is going to kick off our series on Lord of the Rings. So for the next handful of weeks, we're going to be covering nothing but Lord of the Rings. Obviously, we're going to talk a little bit of off-topic stuff that we usually do beforehand, but uh, we're going to be covering part two of fellowship of the ring next week and then the following two weeks after that we're going to be covering the two towers and then the two weeks after that we're going to be covering the return of the king so that's going to be our lord of the Rings series um this is something new for us i know that other podcasts have done it but you know what lord of the rings both dakota and i love this series so i think that digging into it and uh want you know covering it in a series will do this trilogy justice i totally agree and i'm excited about it because this is something that like um i feel like if we derail the conversation by a couple weeks or a couple months like to do two towers or whatever um we may miss some of the narrative threads that we we started in like this podcast or our next podcast you know so i think if we do it um six episodes in a row just cover half of each film we'll be able to come up with like a really good product so thank you guys so much for listening to us here at project geekology for our 28th episode the first of our six-part discussion of the fantastic lord of the rings film trilogy Next week, Anthony and I will be jumping into part two of the Fellowship of the Ring, so be sure not to miss out on our discussion, as well as the following four weeks, which we'll be covering the Two Towers and Return of the King. Be sure to find all links to our show and socials in the show notes so you can keep up to date with all Project Geekology news and updates. If you enjoyed today's show, share it on social media, review it on your preferred podcast application, or talk to us directly online. Uh, We look forward to doing this series, and we hope that you join us for the ride because we know that we're going to love it and we hope you love it too all right guys have a good one peace